calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Here's a quick question for you. How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless, I have the answer. It's a podcast called Sleep Wave with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode. So search Sleep Wave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Oh, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another mini What's in the News episode. I am going to switch things around a little bit and give you a bit of a spiel at the top of the episode instead of saving it to the very, very end, because who knows how many of you actually listen to my yammering off at the very end of the episodes. Um, But I wanted to start off by reminding you all that Patreon is now a thing, and the first episode has now been released. So if you are interested in joining the Angry feminist book club you can do so at the five dollar tier on patreon i just covered zora neale hurston who is the author of the book this month barracoon the story of the last black cargo and she was just such a fascinating character and i feel like her life story really plays into so much about how that book was made how it was written and why it's as great and legendary as it is so I really liked digging into her story a bit it was kind of like a feminist faves but regarding an author on the book that we're going to cover so the next Patreon episode for the book club will be released on March 2nd where we'll be going over the actual text of Barracoon And I want to announce now on the show, I'm going to post about it tomorrow when I upload this episode, but I'm going to let you all know now anyways that I have chosen the book for Women's History Month, and that is going to be Women Talking by Miriam Towes or Toes. I'm going to say Towes. It sounds better than Miriam Toes in my opinion. Uh, So there was actually a movie that was made that came out this year. The movie has been nominated for multiple Academy Awards. And when I first heard about the title of the film, it was actually from an SNL sketch this past Saturday where they were making fun of the fact that no one has heard of like any of the movies that have come out within the last three years. Movies have all just kind of like gone by the wayside for the most part, except for like Avatar and what was the other one? Top Gun, the Top Gun movie. Other than that, I feel like people really haven't been like 
buzzing about like Oscar worthy movies as much as they used to before like 2020 is interesting. But anyways, they were listing all of these different movies to see if like the characters on this game show knew what they were or whatever. And one of them was women talking. And then I saw that some of my friends were reading the book and I was like, okay, what is this about? Because I didn't know if it was a comedy or like what it was. So I looked it up and I looked into the story and it is so fascinating because it's something that sounds like it should have happened almost 100 years ago, not something that happened within the last like 10 to 15 years and is still kind of going on right now. So I highly encourage you to read the book no matter what, but I would really, really love for you all to join me in the book club so we can talk about it. So if you want to do that, there is a link in the show notes to Patreon. There is also a link in the bio on the Instagram page that you can follow to get to the Patreon page. I really, really also want your participation as much as possible, too. So once you join and you start reading these books and you have thoughts and feelings or opinions that you want me to share on the show, you can email me or DM me any thoughts that you have, and I'm going to share them on the episodes. So if you are a part of the book club and you are reading Barracoon with me and you have some of those thoughts, feelings, and questions, you have until I'm probably going to be recording the episode I'm going to say February 28th. So as long as you get to me before then with any of your, you know, additions to the episode, I'll be able to read them on that March 2nd episode for you all. The only other thing that I wanted to mention, just because I do check very often, it is very important to the business of podcasting. I haven't gotten a new review in a while, and I do hear from some people where they're like, I'm going to write this review. Don't worry. It's going to be like this glowing, amazing review. And I love that so much that you want to like truly think about what you're writing because you enjoy the show so much. But really, just a quick little sentence, like give it a listen, really enjoy it. You know, anything that you have to say is so worthwhile to me, but adding that little sentence along with your rating on Apple Podcasts is a really, really great way to kind of nudge people who are maybe considering listening to the show, but aren't so sure. So they scroll, so they scroll down to the reviews and, you know, they'll just be really, really helpful. I would really appreciate it. So now that I am done giving you all of the uh, orders of business that I wanted to chat with, let's get into the news episode a little bit. And I wanted to state, so usually, you know, I'll start with the worst topic and make it a little bit lighter and lighter as I go on through the show. But I'm really glad that I set myself up this way because I had... I say this all the time that I had the worst day at work ever, but I mean it this time. I had the worst day at my retail job that I have ever had. I feel angry, disrespected, um, and pretty hot right now. So I'm glad that I'm not talking about anything that is like life or death serious. I wanted to talk about some more things that have just kind of been happening in the news and pop culture that I haven't really mentioned on the show, but I still think are really important talking points. So luckily, we're all taking a little bit of a break this week from the super, super, super heavy news topics, and we're going to focus on some other stuff. And the first order of business is going to be discussing George Santos. I'm sure you've all seen so much news about him over the last months or so regarding all of his lies. And I haven't really shared much of anything about him on the show, except for maybe posting a few things on Instagram about it. And I think the time of not talking about it has ended because I have some thoughts. 
On paper, George Santos's resume was quite impressive. The 33-year-old son of immigrants had graduated from Baruch College with a degree in finance before working at firms like Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. He eventually said he became a successful financier who started an animal rescue charity. And all of that sounds really great, right? Well, it's all a lie. The New York Times found that he did not graduate from Baruch, nor did he work for Goldman Sachs or Citigroup. There were no records of him being a successful financier, nor was there any history of him registering an animal rescue charity. The Times did find, however, that he had been charged with check fraud in Brazil, which he failed to mention in his resume. He also claimed to have been a star on the Baruch volleyball team. Come on. And also the fact that like there would be questions about his sexuality and stuff. I don't know about you guys, but I know a hell of a lot of gay men that like to play volleyball. So how gay is that? Like (laughs) right then and there, we know you're not straight, dude. Stop lying to us. He also claimed to be a proud American Jew, but no outlets have been able to find any evidence of this. There is no record of him being Jewish, to have any Jewish heritage, or of him being descended from refugees fleeing the Holocaust. The Times released their findings on December 19th, and on December 26th, Santos admitted to putting a little bit of fluff on his resume. A little? He admitted to never graduating from college, saying that he, quote, didn't graduate from any institution of higher learning. He never worked for Goldman Sachs or Citigroup, and he wasn't Jewish, though he called himself Jew-ish. Ick, dude. It was pretty easy to figure out that he hadn't worked for any of the Wall Street giants that he claimed, as he said he worked in Citigroup's real estate wing in the 2010s, but the group sold its asset management operations when he was still in high school. So dude, lie better. These are easily fact-checked. But there were also lies discovered from even farther back in his life. He claimed that he attended a prestigious private academy in the Bronx for his first few years of high school, but had to leave his senior year due to his parents falling on hard times, quote, known as the Depression of 2008, he said. So he is claiming that he would have graduated from Horace Mann in 2008. We have since discovered that there is no evidence that he attended this school at all. And if he had graduated from Horace Mann in 2008, there is no way he could have completed a four-year degree in finance at Baruch and graduate by 2010. He also once said something about going to NYU, but NYU couldn't corroborate those claims. Here's what we do know about George Santos. He is the openly gay son of Brazilian immigrants, and he won the election for a congressional seat for New York in November. He is a hardcore Trump supporter. He was even at the Trump ellipse rally on January 6, 2020. He has repeatedly claimed that Trump actually won the 2020 election as well. The one company that Santos has worked for, Harbor City Capital, has been accused of being a Ponzi scheme by the Securities and Exchange Commission. As far as other places of employment, Santos did a stint as a Portuguese language customer service agent for Dish Network about 10 years ago. One of the biggest questions, though, to come out of this controversy is, did he do drag? Like, obviously, this isn't shade. I want everyone to be able to express themselves and be who they are. I'm not even making fun of George Santos for doing drag. That's the opposite of what I'm thinking. The humor in it that I see is the fact that there would be somebody who would so wholeheartedly support a 
party in a platform that goes so much against of their own personal identity. And the fact that he was fighting so hard against the fact that he was a drag queen when we've literally seen the pictures. Like, it's it's you, dude. Like, just let it go. And I mean, like, come on, this story is just so insane that to add an actual drag queen to it is like the cherry on top of my favorite gossip Sunday. While he initially completely denied these claims, even though, like I said, there were photos leaked that were clearly him in drag, but he eventually admitted it and said that he was just having fun at a festival, which is perfectly fine, but it also goes against so much of what he is supporting politically that it is truly the saddest kind of comedy. I'm so glad that they finally just admitted that they had fun dressing like a girl and owned up to it because let's say for argument's sake that Santos is at least a cisgender male, that it's okay for a man to express themselves in any manner that they please, even if that includes makeup and a hairpiece. But the irony of this situation is glaring. Santos represents a party and a man who are wholeheartedly against that very idea and are fighting so hard in Congress to stop gender-affirming health care, consider bringing same-sex marriage back into debate, and so many other harmful policies to the LGBTQ community, or at least just an ideal that Santos himself can get behind. Also, it saddens me to think, even for a liar like Santos, that he may be feeling some sort of pain inside, an inner turmoil which has made him side with this party and their beliefs. I hope that whatever work he needs to do to heal can be done. Though that might have been the public's biggest question in the grand scheme of things, the biggest question is, where did he get his money from? Santos loaned his own campaign $700,000 during the 2022 cycle and claimed an income of $750,000. He also listed millions of dollars in assets, including an apartment in Rio de Janeiro worth up to a million dollars and a seven-figure savings account, which would be a big life change for someone who was evicted twice for failing to pay rent and someone who's been taken to court for not paying their debts. Even in 2020, his reported income is in excess of $5,000, paid by one source with no other assets. He claimed his newfound wealth came from, quote, capital introduction, where he helped broker deals for the wealthy. Okay. Lastly, on his campaign tour, he claimed to be a landlord who owned 13 properties, but he eventually conceded that he owned no property. So what's happening now? There are local and federal investigations already going on, and a complaint has been filed with the Federal Election Commission, which alleges that Santos hid his source of campaign money through a straw donor scheme. They also accused him of other violations, including using campaign funds for personal expenses. Santos announced on January 31st that he would step aside from his position in the GOP. Many Republicans have been calling on him to resign for some time already, and he made some pretty big enemies in the party for the short time that he was a part of it. House Speaker McCarthy told reporters that the Ethics Committee found that Santos broke the law and that he should be ousted from Congress. But this is wobbly ground for McCarthy to be standing on, because if he doesn't have Santos, he might not have become the Speaker of the House. Also, George Santos is a Republican who represents one of the most Democratic seats in Congress, and losing that could be a risk to the party as well. So what are your thoughts and feelings about this whole scenario? What were your thoughts, especially during, you know, the time that he was denying all of these things? I mean, truly, you can't write stuff this good. It seems like an episode of Veep in real life, in my opinion. So if you have anything to add, I would love to hear it. 
All right, before I go on to the rest of the show, I feel like this is a good time to take a quick commercial break. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I'm back. Another thing that I really wanted to discuss, but keep putting off because there's other more important topics I felt to mention in the news, is Leonardo DiCaprio and his possible grooming behaviors, as well as this trend in Hollywood of older men dating much, much, much younger women. An article on Insider.com begins, Leonardo DiCaprio may grow old, but his girlfriends will stay 22 forever, which made me think of the Taylor Swift lyric from her all too well 10 minute version where she says, I get older, but your lovers stay my age. (laughs) A graph was created by Reddit user Trust Little Brother back in 2019, but has now been updated now that Leo broke up with his latest girlfriend, Camila Marone. Camila had just turned 25 years old when they broke up. She was born the same year that Titanic came out, 1997. She is also the fourth woman in Leo's public dating life to be dumped shortly after the 25-year mark. Leo first met Camilla when she was only 12 years old, though thankfully there is nothing to suggest a romantic or sexual relationship between them at this time, but her former stepdad, who happens to be Al Pacino, who is a friend of Leonardo DiCaprio, introduced his stepdaughter to him. I'm going to stop you right there. This is already creepy to me because it makes me think of like family friends that were around me when I was little that I was just around because they were friends with my parents or family members or whatever. Even to think if I were to go home now and having one of them hit on me, it just seems really weird and inappropriate because of the way the relationship started. Like, I already had this very comfortable relationship with you where I saw you as like family or my dad's friend or whatever. So the fact that now that I'm old enough, you're like coming on to me, that just makes me feel really uncomfortable. So I can't imagine how this even started. They started dating when she was 18 or 19. I think I say it later on in the episode, but I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. But I wonder if, you know, was Al Pacino still married to... Her mother and Leo had been seeing her for the last six years pretty frequently. Did he just meet her the one time? I'm kind of wondering how this relationship started because I feel like that would also answer a lot of my feelings of uneasiness. It would either, you know, tell me that I'm right or tell me that I'm wrong, you know? Oh, here it is. So by the time they were dating, she was 20. So they knew each other for eight years and Leo was in his early 40s. According to the chart, 47-year-old Leo has never dated a woman over the age of 25, and the average age of his girlfriends is 22.9. 
The chart spans more than 20 years and eight relationships from 1999 to 2022. His youngest girlfriend was the Victoria's Secret supermodel Giselle Bunchen, And Giselle was 18 when they began dating in 1999, but this was the smallest age gap that Leo would have as he was only 24 at the time. So they had a six-year age gap. And this is a question that comes up a lot. Just because it's legal, does it make it right? Now, before I get flooded with DMs, hashtag not all men, okay? Keegan started dating her now husband when she was about 23, and Anthony was in his mid-30s, I believe, and Anthony is one of the best people ever. So it isn't always a dangerous situation, but for me, as someone who dated someone much older than myself when I was only 18 to 21 years old, I have thoughts and feelings about age gap relationships in general. I think that most teenage girls, and probably men too, as I know a few stories personally of men being targeted by older women as well, they all have stories of older people telling them that they will wait until they're 18, or stories of unwanted attention from someone older. One study found that 7% of married hetero couples have an age gap of 10 years, and of that 7%, 1% of women are older than their male spouse. There also seems to be a difference in a 30-year-old dating someone in their 40s than when the age gap involves someone who is just joining adulthood and doesn't have the same experience in relationships as their older partner. I had no idea what an adult relationship was, and I had no idea what I was doing in life in general, but the fact that an older guy found me smart, sexy, and talented made me feel worthy and made me feel like... I was special and cool because this person who's already like established in life in my eyes thinks that I'm worthy enough to date and be around. And so it really did give me this false sense of importance and security and made me feel older than I was as well, which I really think, you know, my ex, the one who abused me, I really think that he used that to his advantage, you know, and really kind of used my naivete, but also the expectation of me behaving like a grown-up or how a grown-up should behave in his eyes was always really hung over my head. I also think that the fact that we see more older men dating younger women than the other way around plays into misogyny. Men become silver foxes and age like a fine wine, while women are deemed less and less attractive the older they get. This is probably why we don't see as many older women with younger men, though we do see it. I mean, I think about Keanu Reeves and his, I don't know if they're married now or if it's still girlfriend, but I love them. I think that they're so sweet. Another celebrity that has been in the news for dating a younger woman is Dane Cook. Now, hopefully this isn't stepping on an NDA that I signed years ago, but I used to play this game called Mafia with Dane for game nights at a former employee's home. So I can't remember exactly how this went down. I don't think I was playing because my eyes were open. And Dane was mafia or I don't remember, but he was like looking around the room and he like made eyes with me and he was like, are you mafia? Are you? And I'm like, no, 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 it's not me. It's not me. And he was kind of like teasing me from across the room, just kind of with his eyes and mouthing at me. And later on in the night, we had talked. I had made friends with this other comedian that was kind of like being mentored by him. And so we were all like hanging out and talking. But like, I'm also still in my place of work and things like that. But I was really impressed with how nice and friendly he was because I was a really big fan of his comedy back in like 2006, 2007 when he was huge. And 
he has some really problematic jokes that I didn't really realize when I was younger. And so I didn't expect him to be as like open and friendly as he was. And a few, you know, weeks or months or however much time passed, his little like protege invited me and my ex to go to one of his stand up comedy nights. And of course, like Dane surprised the club by coming on stage and doing a set or whatever. And I really had to pee. So I left like shortly before he was done with his set. And as I was leaving the bathroom, he was like walking down the hall. And one of the jokes that we would tell during Mafia was um, we would be like, are you Mafia? And then they just go townsperson or it was something like that. Again, this was so long ago. My memory is not very clear, but I shot my shot and I like said the joke at him down the hall and he immediately was like townsperson or whatever. And he recognized me and we like hugged and said hi, whatever. And so I was kind of always like, I've had a strangely positive experience with this person. Like I, you know, I think that maybe he's just been perceived wrong, but then again, I was about 23 at the time, so maybe my youngness helped him. <laughs> so the 50-year-old comedian is now engaged to 23-year-old Kelsey Taylor, who is an aspiring singer and Pilates instructor. Dane began dating Kelsey when she was 18 years old in 2017. Dane also met Kelsey at one of these game nights at somebody's home, and he had met her before she had turned 18, and he says they were just friends, whatever, and then once she turned 18, they fell in love. How convenient. Another note about the game nights I attended, there were always a lot of, like, young, up-and-coming, like, young Hollywood stars that would be there on, like, teen TV shows or, like, web series and stuff, but, like, people that you would know... And there was one actress in particular who was like working a lot back then, but now is like a name like you would know who she is. And she was only like 16 at the time. And she was always hanging out with this one like gossip writer again, not naming any names. I signed an NDA who was an adult, but he was a gay man. So maybe that was like a little bit more comforting for her parents. But I was always like, why is this teenager hanging out with these grownups all the time. Like, this just seemed really weird to me. And I always felt a little bit protective over her because she was so comfortable with these, like, grown adult men that it made me really nervous for her. And I also think about this Kelsey, who is now dating Dane as someone who really wants to break into the entertainment industry. You know, she was probably invited to one of these parties by someone like my old boss, who's, you know, got a full-fledged industry career and is an actress and a model and all this stuff. So why wouldn't you say yes to attending a game night like that? But I feel like the fact that this young girl who wants to be successful in the entertainment industry, like so many others, are put in these positions to make friends with older men who are really just waiting to take advantage for them when the time comes. This is another one that I really want your thoughts and opinions on. So if you have any thoughts and feelings on everything that I just said, please let me know. Um, if you are a person who was really, really young and dated someone who was much older and it worked out, I would love to hear about that experience too so I can be proved wrong. But yeah, let me know what you think about all of this and whether you think that you know some of this is grooming behavior if we think that on a whole, it is something to be concerned about, but not to, you know, obviously it's, it is legal. I think it's a situation by situation kind of thing. But yeah, what do you think? 
All right. The last thing that I wanted to talk about today is the passing of a man named Charles Silverstein. He played a critical role in getting the medical community to stop seeing homosexuality as a mental disorder, and he's also the co-author of the landmark book, The Joy of Gay Sex. Another quick aside story here. So when I was younger, I was at my cousin Lisa's bridal shower, and I am the next youngest girl in that family, and there's a tradition that once, you know, the person older gets married, they pass on the book, The Joys of Sex, to the next person to get married. Well, I was probably like six or seven when Lisa gave me this book, and the family's laughing, and oh my god, it's so funny, and I was just so (laughs) taken by even just the cover of this book, I was like, there's naked people in here and nakedness was like a big thing so I was like I gotta read this book and so I like went under a tablecloth and I'm like looking through all the pictures and they're like super graphic illustrations of like different positions and things like that and I got caught and I was so embarrassed my mom was like what are you doing and I was like reading a book and she was like don't read that Oh, oh well. But I love that there is something called the joy of gay sex. I feel like I have heard about it. And now I want to know more about this guy because he really seemed like quite a character. The Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies announced Silverstein's death, and his executor, Aaron Berlinger, told the Washington Post that he died of lung cancer on January 30th, 2023. The organization described him as a hero, activist, a leader, and a friend. His contribution to psychology and the rights of the LGBT plus individuals has been felt around the world. His contributions included a presentation in front of the American Psychiatric Association in February of 1973, where he used a speech to remind psychiatrists how many past diagnoses seemed absurd at the time. Silverstein said, What I did was write a parody, a satire, of all the absurd things that the American Psychiatric Association had diagnosed, which included illnesses like syphilophobia or fear of syphilis. I threw back at them their diagnoses over the decades and how funny it all sounds now, and pointed out that their fun had hurt a lot of people. That December in 1973, the American Psychiatric Association changed the diagnosis of homosexuality in the second edition of the DSM. By the time the DSM-3 came out, it was removed entirely. Silverstein said, Psychoanalysts believed that gay men were doomed to live lives of depression and eventually suicide because of their shame. I argued these men were not ashamed because they were homosexual, but because of what these therapists were telling them. He opened the nation's first and longest-running provider of LGBTQ plus affirming psychotherapy, Identity House, in New York. In 2011, he was awarded a gold medal award for lifetime achievement in the practice of psychology by the American Psychological Foundation. His book, The Joys of Gay Sex, was more than just a manual with graphic drawings, though there was plenty of that. It was the first-ever guidebook for every aspect of the gay experience. His other books include A Family Matter, A Parent's Guide to Homosexuality, published in 1977, and Man to Man, Gay Couples in America, published in 1982, which at the time were both completely unprecedented books. This man just sounds like he was so smart, had an amazing sense of humor, and a strong, empathetic, and activist spirit, wanting to make the world better for himself and for everyone else by sharing his experiences. 
Rest easy, Charles Silverstein. All right, that's everything that I have for you today. I'm not going to give you the whole spiel about Patreon again, but I will remind you that if you want to check out the book club, you can click on the link in the Instagram bio or the link in the show notes for this episode. That will take you to the Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist Patreon page. Also, a quick reminder to please, please, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and rate the show on Spotify as well if you love me. And if there's anything that you want me to talk about in the future that I haven't discussed on the show, whether it be for a full-length episode or for a news episode, please let me know your thoughts and email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. All right, unless I'm forgetting something, that's all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye! Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.